Blog Talk Radio. I'll answer the question. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! You've heard about it. You've read about it. You've talked about it. And now, you've found it. This is Truth About Trucking Live on Blog Talk Radio, the largest radio social network in the world. With your host, Alan Smith, a veteran of OTR trucking, business entrepreneur, and the most recognized name for assisting CDL students and new graduates. It's time to shut down that big rig, sit back, and come join the conversation. Truth About Trucking Live begins right now. All right, and we're back. So welcome back to another broadcast of Truth About Trucking Live on Blog Talk Radio. I'm Alan Smith, uh, along with Donna Smith. And once again, we have a great show for you this evening. We tried last week, but technical problems made us cancel to uh, this week. So glad to have you with us. And I see you popping up on the phone lines. Appreciate it very much. Uh, our uh, special guest, Paul Taylor, an attorney specializing in trucking employment law at his law practice of Taylor & Associates Limited out of Burnsville, Minnesota, through the Truckers Justice Center. And they are on the web at truckersjustice.com. One little special thing we added this evening real quick, uh, Donna, and I know you kind of have the scoop on it, and uh, we have Hope Rivenberg going to come on here real quick and uh, uh, catches up on some things, correct? That's correct. Uh, Hope met with um, <clears throat> the DOT and Congressman Tonko uh, regarding the uh, survey, the truck parking survey, and if everybody remembers, the survey was part of the transportation bill, MAP-21, where uh, it was uh, mandated that each state uh, had to have uh, a, a survey on truck parking because of the severe lack of truck parking that has been confirmed over uh, many studies uh, over the last 20 years. So um, Hope decided she was going to do her own study, and uh, she has taken the initiative uh, to go on with that. Uh, helping her with her study is Desiree Wood of the Women Truckers Network. Um, that includes, and I don't want to omit anybody, but some of the names um, offhand are Shelley Lichty, Sandy Talbot, Allison Morris, and I'm sure there's um, quite a few others. But I do believe that all of them are involved in the study as far as being part of the immediate group. So when the DOT heard about the study that Hope was doing, they did contact her and were thrilled to death uh, about this. And she is going to be presenting this study at the 2013 Truck Drivers Social Media Convention in Kansas City on October 11th through the 13th. She'll be presenting on the 12th. That's the Saturday. So now I'm going to let her tell you how her meeting went with the DOT and Congressman Tonko up in Albany, New York, because she's on the line right now. Okay. Yeah, we have right here. Hope, welcome back to the show, and we'll just turn it over to you. Thanks, Alan. Um, we met. I found out that in the past seven years there was $231 million 
sent in for the grant, and the, the pot only had $34 million in it. That I found very interesting. That pretty much shows the shortage problem. Um, they have, they're waiting for six proposals to come back. They have to be back by May 1st to start the study. Um, so you're saying that out. they didn't even start their study yet? No. They're okay. still waiting for the proposals to come back to do it, for the companies okay. to do it. Okay, so they're having companies do theirs. Apparently so, yes. Okay. Well, that doesn't sound too promising. Well, but um, actually, uh, tell us, okay, I'm going to let you go because I have questions. You know me, my mind's going a mile a minute over here, and, I, and I'll end up interrupting you. Go ahead. Oh, that's okay. Go ahead, Donna, because if you've got a question, seriously. <laughs> well, first of all, I want to say helping with that study, part of the presentation is going to be Richard Wilson and Andy Workaba also. I mean, it, it's quite a, a, a group. Um, putting forth all this effort uh, with you. I, I think you inspired a lot of people, Hope, by doing this because it is quite such a, a huge task. And, uh, I mean, we looked in the past, people were getting funded $500,000 to do these surveys. And this is a group of people who is passionate um, about the results of, of these surveys. So we're going to ask for a lot of driver participation and a lot of... Uh, other people sharing the link for the survey uh, once it's out there. It should be out there within a couple of weeks. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, well, actually, I got on a, on a sidetrack here. Um, go ahead. Tell us about the meeting. Was Congressman Tonko there? Um, I also found out that they are trying to work with, um, like, stores along the major intersections to let the truckers park there for the night, um, I was not aware of that, nor was Congressman Tonko, that that's something that they were working on. He was asking what he could do to help, and I guess kind of at, at his point, he's really kind of at a standstill at the current moment. There's nothing he could really do. Right, right. And he introduced the bill back in 2009, which passed Jason's law. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was just like I found out where DOT stood, they know what we're doing, and the, the congressman has been kept in the loop. Okay. Um, Wonderful. I'm trying to think if there was – I think those were the major things. Okay, but from 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 our conversations, um, DOT is pretty excited about your um, your research and survey that uh, – that's going DOT on. is extremely excited. Um, they have agreed that they will share their survey results with us, and we will share our survey results with them. Um, they really want to hear it from the drivers. Okay. Where the trouble spots are and such like that. Okay. Now, you had told me that um, they were planning on attending the convention. They just had to clear it with their department. Tom is interested in um, attending the convention. He does have to. I sent him all the information about the convention. He has to get permission from higher up to be able to go. Right, right. And that's usually and how it. He, right. As soon as he finds out either way, he will let me know. Okay, wonderful. 
Well, I know Congressman Tonko must be pretty thrilled all this is going on instead of, I mean, it's a thrill just that it made it in the bill, the transportation bill, and I'm sure that was a huge victory. It was a huge victory. Now, now to actually see it um, progressing, I think, into uh, materializing into something not just in a bill, but something's being done and people are taking the steps forward to make sure it's done. And I think it probably inspires DOT, too. I'm sure they're inspired by all this. So um, I, I think it's just a very um, a very exciting thing, and I, we really do appreciate you meeting with them on Monday. It was it was an interesting meeting on my behalf. I just uh, hear, like I said, where DOT is at, where they're going, what else you know what I mean what else is going on it does have to be renewed every couple of years to evaluate the problem still it's not like it's going to be a one time deal they do plan on renewing it um, seeing which areas are getting better which areas are getting worse so on and so forth well at least though they're starting because I mean this could go on and on another 20 years and not be anywhere Um, and from everything that we read the parking situations are getting worse, and then with the regulations being placed, it's also making it uh, worse. Uh, and then you throw you throw an EOBR in the mix, where you know you 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 have to stop, and if you don't have parking, uh, then now I mean it's even worse than it was years ago because there's a lot more uh, going on as far as uh, driver regulations go. Plus the rest areas are closing up, so. You know, I think it's it's at a point now where something really needed to be done, and I think everybody realized it. So um, we're really just so excited about um, your your presentation, and I know Andy and Rich and Desiree and all the gals over at the Women's Truckers Network are also. Uh, so, well, thanks for uh, coming on tonight. I mean, I know you're real busy, and we appreciate it. I hope you get to listen to a little bit of Paul. If not, he's always on the uh, replay. I'm hoping that I do, too, and thanks for having me on so that I could give you guys all the update with uh, the meeting. Okay. Well, we'll stay in touch, of course, and, of course, we'll be talking to you on Saturday on our um, weekly meeting and as we go over um, all the survey and and the truck study. Just one more question. How is the um, individual, not the survey, because I know how that's all going, um, how is the individual driver study going? How many drivers do you have signed up for that driver study? I know we were shooting for 20 or 30. I think you've got like 50. Yes, I have roughly 50. Um, I received another email yesterday from somebody who would like to partake in it. It's actually going uh-huh. pretty good. Um I'm in the process Have of creating a Facebook it? page. Well, I'm in the process of creating a Facebook page so that the drivers at the end of the night when they're on Facebook can just go on this page, write down their troubles for the night, and, yeah, then I'll go in and take the information off it. And, and it's a private oh, site. That's perfect. Is that going to be like a closed group? It is a closed group, yeah. Okay, wonderful. But oh, that's great. They have to send me their information, and then I will include them in the group. Oh, that's that's wonderful, and that just goes along right along with the whole uh, social media convention, the power of social media. I mean, here they're using Facebook to record all their um, all their concerns and experiences. It's just awesome. Yes, okay, hope. 
Um, is there anything else that you can think of? Um, anything you want to add? You know, request to people or um, or anything? If they don't want to be part of the focus group, just please, everybody, take the survey, share the link, have your friend share the link, and take the survey. It is extremely Right, and we'll have that posted in a couple of weeks. Don't worry, we're going to be blasting it all over the place. You won't have to ask where it is. It's going to be all over. <laughs> so, yes. uh, okay. Well, that's awesome. Thanks so much, Hope. Thank you, guys. All right. <clears throat> Thanks again, Hope. Appreciate it. And, uh, all right, we can get rolling. Uh, we have, uh, again, Mr. Uh, Paul Taylor with the Truckers Justice Center. He specializes in the areas of refusal to drive, commercial truck lease disputes, drug and alcohol testing, and the DAC report, and more specifically the Service Transportation Assistance Act as it relates to uh, prohibiting motor carriers from retaliating against commercial drivers for uh, filing complaints regarding violations of the commercial vehicle safety regulations. And uh, the Truckers Justice Center, on the web at truckersjustice.com, has been helping truck drivers across the nation for years, and he comes from a third-generation trucking family and is a member of the National Employment Lawyers Association. He's handled employment cases before the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the Minnesota Department of Human Rights, the U.S. Department of Labor, uh, most of the U.S. Uh, Circuit Courts of Appeals, the U.S. District Court for Minnesota and Minnesota State and Supreme Courts, and he has also handled several cases at the U.S. Supreme Court level. So uh, just a quick sponsor break. We'll be back with our guests on our upcoming broadcast, Trucker's Justice with Paul Taylor, and it's finally coming up on Truth About Trucking Live. You're listening to Truth About Trucking Live on Blog Talk Radio. Alan Smith will be right back. Hey everybody, Alan Smith here with the Truth About Trucking Live on Blog Talk Radio. Have you been driving a big rig for a while now and considering starting your own business as an owner-operator? Well, Lone Mountain Truck Leasing offers the best lease purchase plan in the industry. With a small down payment and monthly payments around $1,000 or less, you make the monthly payment and when the final payment is made, they hand over the title. It really is that simple. There is no big balloon payment at the end, and secondly, the truck is yours, not a lease plan under one truck and company. So if becoming an owner-operator is your goal, do it the right way. Do it the best way. Contact Lone Mountain Truck Leasing on the web at LoneMountainTruck.com or give them a call toll-free at 866-512-5685. That's LoneMountainTruck.com. And be sure to tell them that you heard about them on Truth About Trucking Live. Hey, thanks again for listening to Truth About Trucking Live. And I want to tell you about XRS Corporation and how they're leading the way for the industry's mobile technology. XRS puts the power to improve every aspect of trucking in the hands of the ones who matter the most, the drivers. Named to honor the natural evolution of Zada, their previous name, and Road Science, their ongoing business focus, XRS is a company and a breakthrough mobile technology platform dedicated to alleviating the increasing demands on drivers 
drivers, owner-operators, and fleet managers. XRS is leading the trucking industry's migration to mobile devices for collecting and analyzing compliance and management data. Through XRS, fleet managers, owners, and drivers can collect, sort, view, and analyze data to help lower costs, increase safety, attain compliance with governmental regulations, and improve customer satisfaction all through their mobile devices. Their simple plug-and-play solution eliminates costly equipment purchases, installation, and training by delivering intuitive cloud-based technology built directly through all major wireless carriers to virtually any mobile device. For more information, visit them at xrscorp.com, and you can also find them on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube, XRS Corporation, dedicated to making the life of the driver easier. Learn more about their breakthrough mobile technology platform. Check them out at xrscorp.com. This is Truth About Trucking Live with Alan Smith. To be a part of the program, call in now at 347-826-9170. Skype users can call in by clicking on the Skype button on our show page. To be a sponsor of the show, email Donna at info at truthabouttrucking.com. Now, back to the show. All right, and here we are. Our guest this evening, Paul uh, Paul Taylor with the Truckers Justice Center at truckersjustice.com. And, Paul, thanks for hanging with us. Uh, looks like we're going to get it done this week. That will be very nice. <laughs> yeah. I know um, Donna was talking to you earlier, and you were running out of the courthouse or something, so I, I know you're staying busy. We appreciate you spending the time with us this evening. Uh, just just to reiterate a little bit of what we tried to do last week, I had asked you that, you know, when we when we look at this Surface Transportation Assistance Act, the STAA, uh, to me anyway, you know, just looking at the title, there's no indication that it has anything to do with driver rights, but I had asked you if uh, drivers were coming to understand that they, you know, they do have legal protection as it relates to their employment, and you had mentioned uh, just real quickly again that um, you're seeing that they're uh, they're discovering that more through the internet social media and aspects like that yeah they are it's uh, it's funny i spent uh i've been an attorney 28 years and uh, was a section director of the transportation lawyers association excuse me a section chairman and i wasn't aware of the law until uh, i received a call in about 1996 from daphne Iser from parents against tired truckers and uh, heard her story about how uh, a driver who was behind on his logbook and his logbook was falsified ended up having a micro burst of sleep and, and killing her son and three others. So um, that kind of motivated me from being what was essentially a bill collection attorney for trucking companies into moving into this sphere and the social media, including your websites, uh, and a group called Teamsters for a Democratic Union, which is, uh, deals with uh, union members' rights and truck safety issues, um, has done a good job of, of educating people, and I've tried to do it on some of the, uh, the Internet websites. Uh, and so uh, drivers are finding more and more about their rights under the law. The, the Surface Transportation Assistance Act, your right doesn't really, in its title, say anything about driver rights. That was the law signed by President Reagan in 1982, 
which gave us 80,000 pound highways on the national network and uh, at that time 48 foot trailers but it had this little provision in there that essentially states it's illegal to retaliate against a driver because the driver refuses to drive in violation of a commercial vehicle safety regulation or makes complaints which are related to violations of, of uh, commercial vehicle safety regulations, either complaints to the employer or complaints to the government. So it could be something as uh, minimal as refusing to drive without a, one of the required marker lamps. And uh, we've had those kind of cases. But typically it's a driver who's tried to work with the company to get a repair made and uh, simply the repair doesn't get made and he's ultimately fed up and refuses to drive. Other times it's a more critical case where there's an imminent safety hazard like an audible air leak or, uh, you know, brakes severely out of adjustment. So we've been able to educate drivers of their rights under that law and that law is available to them out there to uh, get their jobs back and seek damages and uh, payment of attorney's fees. So the, the attorney fee provision allows my firm to take smaller cases where somebody might be beat out of two or three thousand dollars they're fired and you know they're back to work for more money in a month or whatever so that attorney fee provision is uh, important to me because it gets me paid and it's important to drivers because it allows me to take smaller cases rather than working on a just a, a one-third basis but uh, i applaud your efforts to help uh, educate drivers in the, this area and to uh, Bring me to your last two uh, social media conventions. Oh yeah, that was great, and we got just we just got so much response, and drivers are always you know still tell me that they learned they just learned so much. Um, uh, last week you were the technical problem; I couldn't hardly hear you. Had started to say something that you had sat on the board of. I thought you said the board of the STAA. Was that correct, or you had sat on the board of of what what was it that you were going to say? Do you recall? I don't recall what I, I mean. What I've been on was I was a I'm was a member of the uh, I was co-chair of the whistleblower committee of the uh, okay. National Employment Lawyers Association. I did okay. one well, in that area, and I'm still quite quite active. Well, I you know I've gone over this uh, STA website, and uh, you know I, I'm certainly no attorney, but I tried to. I try to understand it all. I mean, one of the big things that I see is uh, drivers may not realize, uh, you know, there's there's certain uh, certain rules, I guess, they have to abide by. I mean, one I noticed on the site was, you know, they have to file a complaint with the Secretary of Labor not later than 180 days after the alleged violation occurred. So I guess oftentimes uh, the time to file on such cases have passed because the driver just didn't know about any kind of time limits or anything. I mean, what, what are other what are some other rules uh, that drivers should know when considering filing a complaint with OSHA? I mean, when they feel their rights have been violated, so they don't pass any any time limits or other such notice. Well, the the time limit provision runs from the date the driver acquires knowledge of the act of retaliation which sometimes may not be obvious. For example, um, I have the case of union drivers where they are progressively disciplined and then they go to a grievance hearing. Well, a grievance, they might, for example, have received a, uh, a firing letter on January 2nd, but they continue to work under most 
Teamster contracts, you continue to work pending the outcome of a grievance hearing. And so that 180 days can slip by because there might be several several level of grievances. So if you work in a regulated profession, um, such as trucking, you know, the drivers should be aware that that time period is going to run from the date the company says, okay, we're issuing you this firing letter, but you get to keep working. The other thing is where, where I talked about where it may, that it, the act of retaliation may be more subtle and the driver doesn't actually know about it right away. I'll give you an example. Several years ago, I had a client. His case is still pending on appeal. We've uh, won it at two levels of the Department of Labor, and now it's going to the Court of Appeals. This driver was a driver for Maverick Transportation. He had been in a crash where a group of motorcycles were ahead of him uh, on the highway. A deer jumped out, knocked a motorcyclist down, and my client couldn't avoid the accident, ran over this driver, killing him. The Mm. driver uh, left the employee of the company and managed to find a job. He went back to J.B. Hunt. Uh, Driver's name was uh, Albert Cantor, and uh, he didn't find out until several years later that there had been adverse information put on his DAC report. They put on that he abandoned the truck. Well, the fact is the abandonment was he refused to drive it because it had been cited by DOT for a uh, power steering fluid leak and uh, I believe a brake hose not being protected against chafing, both of which are violations. They found that those didn't contribute to the crash, but after that point, after he got home, he refused, took some time off just to deal with the stress of having run over a, dry, uh, a motorcyclist and killed him and um Maverick asked him to drive the truck um, quite some distance, and he refused, and they put an abandonment on his DAC report, but he didn't find out for about it for several years. So sometimes we're able to revive, sort of revive those old claims. We couldn't contest his firing. Excuse me, he quit. Um, but, um, you know, we were able to successfully convince the judge and the uh, review board of the Department of Labor, which acts as a sort of appeals court, that the time period should run from the date he discovered that this information was on a stack report. The other thing that can at least partially revive a claim is, for example, if the driver maybe two, three years down the line, a carrier is doing their DOT-required background check and would would contact the previous employer, and the employer would badmouth this driver uh, in retaliation for his protected work refusal or his protected safety complaint. So sometimes we're able to, to deal with claims that are over 180 days, but it's really important that a driver act quickly and files complaint with OSHA can be done orally. You know, there's no form complaint. It, it, the, the statute says file with the Secretary of Labor, but that's accomplished through filing with, uh, with a federal OSHA office, not a state office. So um, and and there is no re- you have to go through the OSHA process. You can't bring one of these complaints in just a regular state or federal court. Well, since you brought up the uh, the firing thing, I'll just ask you here real quick because I I want you to uh, touch on what you know you're you're here for, uh, and you know talk about what you want to talk about. But two two questions I get a lot from drivers: uh, Can an employer fire you without giving you? without giving you a reason why, and 
Two, after giving a two-week notice and quitting the job, doesn't the trucking company have to provide you a way back home? Now, I always tell them the answer to both questions is no. I mean, would you agree with that? As a general rule, yes. However, some states, including my state, Minnesota, keeping in mind, I handle cases all all over the country. Um, But in Minnesota, if you ask uh, the employer why they fired you, in writing, within 15 days after being fired, they have to tell you. But typically the answer is not a good fit. They don't tell you why you're not a good fit. Uh, You know, somebody else was more qualified or we had to lay off people and we took the most qualified driver, but they won't tell the driver why why he's not the best qualified. So the answer is at the time of firing, in most states, you and I'm just going to say most because there might be a few that don't have this requirement, they do not have to tell you why you were fired. As to the ride home issue, and we're talking about employee drivers right now, not owner-operators, even though the Surface Transportation right. Assistance Act does apply to owner-operators, in, in whether or not they have to give you a ride home depends upon the law of the state. So I'm not prepared to go out and venture a guess on what the law is in Alabama or Tennessee or someplace like that. So I'm not aware of any requirement in that regard. So make sure if you're going to quit, you got got your advances enough to pay for a bus ticket or airline ticket. And that's the law of the state that the company is in, correct? Not where the driver lives. Well, where the driver's normal reporting for work location is. I mean, for example, okay. if you have a driver for Martin Transport and, and he's domiciled, his home terminal is Fontana, California, I mean, that would typically be Fontana, California, as, a port, as opposed to Mondovi, Wisconsin. Okay. Okay. Well, I know you've had some pretty big, win, pretty big uh, wins on some cases here, and you have some uh, – uh, important updates on things that's been happening with you and your law firm. So I'll just uh, I'll just let you uh, jump in there and take us where you want to take us. Well, there's some interesting cases we've had in our firm lately, um, and uh, you know, God's been good lately. Sometimes we don't win cases, um, but lately things have been looking pretty good. I'll I'll just go through uh, three fairly recently decided cases. Uh, one is a case involving a driver named Robert Fink. He was a West Virginia, uh, he's a West Virginia resident, and he drove for R&L Transfer. He drove doubles between um, Hagerstown and uh, Norristown, and uh, he had uh, been observing bad weather reports throughout the day. He was uh, scheduled to pull a load of doubles that night. Attempted to drive his own personal vehicle that evening. He lived about 20 miles from the terminal and uh, had some problems driving his four-wheel drive pickup, and he booked off because of bad weather, and he was fired for that. And uh, we were successful in winning that case. There were some concerns we had that he didn't at least make the attempt to go out, uh, but the judge uh, found that he acted reasonably. And doing a bad weather refusal to drive I would counsel the drivers who are listening now or later that they would should um, 
you know, do the things that you're supposed to do. Call the state highway department. Don't necessarily make a forecast, rely on a forecast for 10 hours out when you refuse. They'll monitor the conditions up to the time of dispatch, perhaps call in ahead of time and say, what's the weather looking like to you? What are the drivers telling you? Usually you should at least make the attempt um, and uh, document these things. You know, print the weather reports, the uh, NOAA.gov, N-O-A-A, National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, maintains weather reports. And, you know, you if you're going to refuse to drive because of bad weather, it better not be a sprinkle. It should be, a, you know, pretty nasty storm before you make that refusal. And it has to be, the refusal has to be based on conditions at the time or in the near future. Well, we were successful in getting Rob his job back, and uh, he was out of work for about a year, close to a year, and then got a lower-paying job. And uh, the, he was lost his home through foreclosure, and a lot of bad things happened. We got him back pay and about $100,000 worth of damages for mental pain, some punitive damages, and my attorney's fees. So that that was a real successful win for us, and uh, uh, I say it was probably a close call. The uh, R&L has appealed. Uh, that's one significant one. So drivers understand the regulations, 49 CFR section 392.14, prohibit you from driving when weather conditions become sufficiently dangerous. And whether the sufficiently dangerous depends on what an administrative law from the U.S. Department of Labor determines to be sufficiently dangerous. Anyway, you're supposed to terminate operations. Um, another case that we were recently successful on at uh, two levels, we're awaiting to see if they appeal, is uh, a case called John Youngerman versus United Parcel Service. And people who think UPS is this model company are really snowed. Ask a driver who drives for them. Um, anyway, John was had a, a UPS uses the term have to make service or make a sort, so they have service on trailers. Anyway, John was uh, supposed to pull a trailer from a, a pup from a, a shipper about 10 miles back to his home terminal at Earth City, Missouri, a suburb of St. Louis. He was in, he inspected the trailer. It had no tail lights, so he spent some time trying to mess with the, the pigtail, and still couldn't get the lights to work. And he called the company and said, uh, you know, I'm not going to drive this because the lights are out. And they said, do the flashers work? He said, yes, they do. They said, then drive with the flashers on. And he said, then I won't be able to signal my turn. Ultimately, he refused to drive, got fired for it. This wonderful com uh, company, we don't... Uh, with the UPS drivers I work with, we don't use the term, let's see what Brown can do for you, you know, see what Brown can will do to you. And uh good paying job. And, 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 and this was a, had a lot of courage. And this was at night though, night. correct? It was a, yeah, about 8 or 9 p.m. and um, just dusk. And, you know, the regulations say all lamps required by this subpart, I believe this is 393.9, says they must be in good working order at all times. And right. uh, John refused to drive. He was fired through the union process. It was reduced to, I believe, a three-day suspension. Um, we made a, a you know settlement offer, I don't know, something like 6000 bucks, which included the attorney's fees. We made that very, off, a very uh, early. Uh, UPS wouldn't give. And consequently, they had to pay him back pay, plus about 5000 for mental pain. 
my attorney's fees, which are somewhere around $37,000, and the administrative law judge awarded $100,000 in punitive damages. Those are damages meant to punish UBS. Uh, we were affirmed on appeal. We won on appeal. Uh, uh, UPS only appealed the um, punitive damages award, and uh, I don't know if they're going to appeal to the next level. Their date to appeal is up Monday. So, uh, you know, this goes on in big companies and small companies. And, and the regulations, are, are they're read literally by the court. For example, uh, in another case, uh, was not my case, but the judge, the regulations require windshield wipers capable of operating. Well, there was a driver who refused to drive without working windshield wipers on a sunny day and won. Um, you know, who knows what the weather conditions are going to, if the weather conditions are going to change during a run. The most recent uh, victory we've had is a case called uh, Thomas Graff versus Cargo Express. Cargo Express is a uh, trucking company based in uh, Boise, Idaho. Thomas Graff is also known as TJ. He's a longtime friend of mine. I've known him for about 15 years. And, you know, just as a, a matter of uh, him learning about this law through the Internet and meeting me, and uh, he knew what his rights were, and he called me before he got fired. He was directed to drive a truck with an air leak and an oil leak. Well, the regulations say, they don't say you can't drive uh, or you may drive with a little oil leak. They said you, the truck shall be free of leaks, oil leaks. That's what the law says. And he refused to drive it. The vehicle had been checked. Um, it was losing air when it was parked for about an hour. It lost all air sitting, and uh, he ultimately refused to drive it. Uh, he was threatened by the president of the company um, who sent him a Qualcomm message that said, Thomas, drive my truck or I'll get someone else who will. And uh, ultimately, he drove under threat of firing, but his initial refusal, refusal was held to be a protected work refusal by the presiding administrative law judge. Additionally, um, uh, the judge found his complaints filed with Cargo Express about the oil leak and air leak were protected complaints and found that he was fired because of those complaints. He was awarded about $65,000 in back pay. He was out of work for quite a while. Um, and he was awarded $25,000 in mental pain and emotional distress damages. Um, excuse me. I take that back. $25,000 in punitive damages. And the judge ordered uh, Cargo Express to pay his attorney's fees. I submitted my attorney fee application um, yesterday. So we're waiting for that. Cargo Express has not appealed the administrative law judge's decision, so we understand that uh, they'll be cutting the check shortly. So and, that's and they a good also thing. came. They, they, oh, I don't mean to interrupt. They also came back and tried to say that he was terminated because uh, he didn't meet their mileage requirements or something like that, right? Yeah, that was that was a re that was a real fairy tale. Part of winning these cases, we have um, our burden that is the driver's burden, is to show that he engaged in one of these protected activities, refusing to drive based on a violation of a DOT regulation uh, or and complaints, filing safety-related complaints. Those are um, what we call protected activities. So we have to have that to win. Two, we have to have 
an ad, what the law calls an adverse employment action, which could be blacklisting on DAC, it could be a firing, it could be a demotion, a transfer, uh, or all of those things. And then we have to prove that there's a causal connection, that those protected activities were contributing factors. They played a part uh, in the decision to fire or take some other adverse action. At that point, if we meet that burden, then the burden shifts to the employer to say, to prove that they would have fired him anyway in the absence of his protected uh, activities. And the burden is what the law calls um, clear and convincing evidence, which is a real high burden. So if we can just show that a protected activity contributed to a firing, we can, uh, you know, we're about 90% of the way home. In the case of Mr. Graff, TJ, the uh, Court of Appeal, or excuse me, Cargo Express said he was fired for low miles. And he had lower miles because his truck was, I mean, broken real frequently. So his miles were done. But uh, he had, he was fired on like June 7th, and the company had a provision for warning drivers with low miles. And he had received uh, two or three warnings, and the last one was May 31st. And Cargo Express's officials, um, either the president or vice president, testified at trial that the purpose of that letter was to warn him so he could improve his conduct in June. Well, they fired him on June 7th. They didn't give him very much time to improve his performance. And two, we showed an instance where one driver during the same time period had eight warnings for low miles. TJ had uh, three, I believe, and that they didn't fire a single driver for low miles during the entire time he worked there, other than claiming that he was fired for low miles. So, I mean, they spun a real fairy tale in this case. You know, the president and the vice president and the dispatcher, all of whom were related. The president was the owner of the company, and the vice president and uh, TJ's dispatchers were his sons-in-law. So, um, you know, uh, the judge didn't buy their fairy tale. Okay, well, well, here's where I see one of the biggest problems for drivers on how things uh, are set up, and, and most specifically the DAC report. I mean, uh, on the STAA page, it tells you that uh, – I'm glad you brought that burden of proof up, because on the page it tells you that uh, all, all complaints initiated under this section shall be governed by the legal burdens of proof set forth in Section 4212.1b. So that term, legal burden of proof, uh, falls on the driver, for instance. So when we talk about false information on the DAC report, uh, you have a driver who was told to uh, uh, drop off a truck at a drop yard, nobody around, no witnesses, no confirmation from the dispatcher, and then their DAC shows an abandoned vehicle on their report. And because it was done in the middle of the night at a little drop yard in the middle of nowhere, I mean, the burden of proof can really become a burden. And uh, I know you say, well, don't, you tell drivers, well, don't give the company a reason to put anything on your DAC report. But in, in, I hear this story all the time. I mean, in a situation where there's nobody around, no witnesses, uh, no confirmation, I mean, what can a driver do? Well, let's talk. I mean, you're broadening the discussion beyond the STAA, uh, which, okay. but, of course, we've used that to clean up DAC reports. But there's a lot of things drivers need to do and uh, to prepare a good case, whether it's to challenge the DAC report under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, which doesn't give people a, a lot of 
you know, room to or a lot of options to clean up a DAC report outside of some other anti-retaliation law like the STA. But several several things can go on. Um, for example, like let's say a driver is asked to drive an unsafe truck and they say drop it in a drop yard. You know, I, I, as an attorney, I'm not going to say drive it the 20 miles to the drop yard because, you know, I didn't in essence be ad, a, advising them to break, drive in violation of the law, which I can't do. But I understand as a practical matter, a lot of drivers want to protect their neck and work, work with the company. But if you're having problems with a truck, you can do several things. And these are all things that T.J. Graff did in the case against Cargo Express. You know, he communicated by Qualcomm. Thus, there was a written record created. Now, mind you, those Qualcomm records are not, necess- are not necessarily preserved. So he had a camera, and he took photographs of his Qualcomm communications with Cargo Express. So every driver nowadays, there's no excuse, you know, not to keep a camera with you. That camera can document bald tires. So, you know, driver, you know, let's show, you know, what the tread depth looks like on major groove patterns. We, we know the regulation. Tire has to be 230 seconds on a an inch on a major groove pattern. Can't have bulges, can't have belts showing. So use a camera, use a flashlight. Get other drivers. If you're at a place and you don't have a camera or you need something looked at, get other drivers to come over and look at the defect and to write you a statement with their last name. You know, it shouldn't be Billy from Heartland Express, you know. It should be whatever his name, address, phone number is. So you can contact to deal with that. But the most important thing is to clearly communicate with the carrier. Where do you want this? Which drop yard? You know, in protecting a DAC report also is doing sometimes doing things you don't want to do. If the truck's safe and in compliance with DOT regulations and you're sick of not getting paid and you don't want an abandonment on your DAC report, take it to where the company directs you to. You know, we know carriers like CR England, Martin, Hartland, other people, and they may have, you know, your home terminal might be Indianapolis, so don't drop it in the in the you know in the yard in Hagerstown, unless of course it's an unsafe truck, and then you clearly communicate what's unsafe about it. This truck does not comply with the following dereg- following regulations because it has bald tires or defective brakes or you know um, an air you know an audible air leak, and make those communications. And the other thing to do using that Qualcomm and have the photograph is to let the carrier talk. If, for example, I have a lot of hours of service cases, and I've had drivers call me as these things are happening, and I can give them advice on what to put on the Qualcomm. But, for example, driver might send a Qualcomm message that says, "I've got 300 miles to go, and my 14 hours is up, and you know, in 45 minutes, what do you want me to do?" And you get the response that says, "Well, get it there, and then take your break." Well, communicate back, I'm not willing to do that. What else would you have me to do? Put the burden on the carrier to tell you what to do. And if they give you an illegal instruction, well, then you've got some pretty good evidence should they attempt to blacklist you with DAC or fire you. Well, I just bring that up because, I mean, the the two things I, 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 I get so many emails a day now, I can't even cover them all. And, uh, and Donna sees yeah, me too. as well, too. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you do. The uh, the ones that I see the most about DAC is the abandoned vehicle 
and the quit under load. I mean, I just had a driver write me a few days ago. I mean, he gives us two weeks' notice. He picks up a load on Friday, which is the last day of his two weeks. The load doesn't deliver until the next Tuesday. He takes the load to his home terminal, drops off everything, keys, logs, paperwork. Everything's perfect. He catches a cab to the airport. He thinks everything's fine. Comes to find out later that the company places a quit under load on his DAC. So it's just things like that that uh, – that, uh, and, and I'm glad you said it's not just the big companies because this was just a smaller company. So uh, that's the reason I wanted to ask you that because those are the two things I hear mostly about DAC. Then take the dispatch. Give the notice. Give the two-week notice. You know, if they give you a load on Friday and it's a pre-plan, decline it and send them a, a Qualcomm that says, um, you know, Hey, I gave my two-week notice. Two weeks is up day after tomorrow. This load can't deliver till the following Tuesday. I can't take it. I mean, that's that's the good documentation route. You know, really, in the worst-case scenario, you deliver the load anyway. You deliver it anyway because this is, you know, there aren't a lot of th- – I have drivers call me with DAC problems every single day, and most I can't help, at least not help efficiently. Cost effectively, you know, if it, if there's a, a truck STA case where the matter of having the bad back is because the driver, you know, refused to drive in violation of a DOT regulation, that's one thing. But it's a matter of preserving, you know, your DAC because we know a, a bad DAC report will ruin you. You'll be driving a garbage truck in New Jersey for a couple of years. It's an abandonment <laughs> on a DAC report is probably has the same effect as a positive controlled substance or alcohol test when it comes to getting hired. You know, the accident information, uh, while we're talking about DAC reports, I have lots of drivers call me, well, that wasn't preventable. Well, maybe it really was. Is the care, you know, could a some reasonable person find that the accident was preventable? Most issues of whether an accident is preventable or non-preventable is a matter of opinion. And the trucking company is entitled to post its opinion on a DAC report. I usually tell drivers that a non-preventable accident is one where you have the right-of-way going through an intersection and the drunk driver T-bones you at 90 miles per hour by running through a red light. I mean, that clearly is not preventable. The rest of the stuff, there's really a broad range of what's preventable and non-preventable. Although sometimes even that issue of opinion, we're able to persuade trucking companies in a rare case to change it. So... Well, what's, that, what's that, the first keeping that abandonment off? And, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, what's the, then? What's the first step um, a driver should take? You know, if they're if they're willing to go forward under 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 a violation. I mean, um, should they before they even contact you? Should they first file a complaint with OSHA? Have that on file first. Now, well, I would prefer. I of course would always prefer that they contact me before the complaint is filed. Um, oh, okay. I've seen complaints by by drivers who represent themselves, and it's a bunch of gobbledygook, um, and it might be 20 pages long. You know, I'm able to write one that looks a complaint that looks like a lawsuit filed in a trial court and lays out the issues concisely. The other thing is a driver, by filing his own complaint, he does so at his peril. He might say something like, I'm not looking for mental pain back pay or my job back. I'm just looking for back pay. 
what they owed me when they fired me. Well, he might have just, a court could construe that he's waived his right to make a claim for mental pain. Right. You know, mental pain does come from being fired. You know, the humiliation that's involved, going without a job. You know, I've had, I had a driver recently uh, had to hitchhike from Indianapolis back to, um, when he got illegally fired, from Indianapolis back to Florida. So, you know, I would prefer that they contact me in, in advance. Frankly, the best time to contact me is before you get fired. If, for example, I have drivers call me, gee, my company keeps making me break hours of service regulations. And I say, no, only you can do the violation. They're not making you. You have options. I understand sometimes drivers feel they need to do that. But, you know, I can assist them and give them some advice. A, stop falsifying immediately. I I know this is less the case with electronic logs, but stop falsifying immediately. Send a Qualcomm to the company now that says you're going to no longer violate hours of service regulations. You know, then when it comes up the next time and they're, you know, two hours from destination and they're out of hours and the company's saying go on, I can give them a little advice on what to do, you know, what to put on the Qualcomm. So that's the best time to call and we can, I can give them some advice on, on, on starting to, uh, uh, document, you know, and I'm not necessarily trolling for business here. A lot of times, if you put that on the Qualcomm, I, I have two hours to go. I'm out on my 14 or out on my 70, whatever it is. Um, I'm not going to do that. Now the company knows there's a written record now with the Qualcomm, and they might just stop at least for a little while from doing that, and the driver keeps his job or at least has enough time to keep his job quit and, and protect his DAC report. So uh, my preference is that they not go immediately to OSHA, you know, unless, of course, it's the 179th day and they can't reach me because it's only 180 days from the date of retaliation to file. So, but in most cases, I would prefer that they contact me, you know, before or, you know, immediately after they've been fired and we can put together a complaint, you know, I have a pretty good knowledge, I have a pretty good knowledge of the regulations that would apply and um, we can move forward. Yeah, and, uh, well, Donald, that only makes sense, too, because, I mean, the best best way to put it, I guess, is just don't try to represent yourself. <laughs> no, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, like he said, you're going to say things, people oversay things in general, not just trucking and everything. But they tend to just keep talking and talking, and that's what what they want you to do is just keep talking. So <clears throat> I absolutely, you know, I, I can totally see that. But, I mean, I know a lot of people do get angry, and they contact OSHA and, and, and make a complaint. Okay, well, Paul, let me, uh, let me just... Well, and, you, and a, lot of, a lot of them quit. Go ahead. Oh, no, go you ahead. go ahead. Well, I'll just well, go to set you up a on a lot of people when this is happening to them, they they quit and then they want to bring a claim and that's pretty tough to bring a claim that you've been fired when you've quit. So, yeah. You know, the, yeah, it just uh, kind of turns back. You know, they use it they use it against them, but yeah, go ahead. Let me if you don't mind, I'd like to talk about a few things that I do when screening whether there's a good case. Sure. And uh God God loves truckers. And I love truckers, and sometimes they frustrate me, okay? And uh, without truckers, we wouldn't have food on the table, and I wouldn't have a law practice. I'd be doing wills and divorces, which are pretty 
pretty distasteful to me. Um, <laughs> when a driver calls me, he'll typically want to tell me his whole story. But I can screen, typically can screen a case in at least five minutes to tell whether or not they have a case. And uh, you know, when they call me, and they're welcome to, you know, I get calls at 10 at night. Don't call after that, to, after 10 at night. You know, the number that's listed on my website is my cell phone. But they'll usually, I'll say, is this a long story or a short story? And they'll say it's a long story. And I said, well, let's do the five-minute version. And I'll say, were you fired? Yes. Okay, we can go to line two. How long ago? Three years ago, I said, I can't help you, partner. Um, and I will go through an ex explanation why, because there's 180-day day statute of limitations to file with OSHA. But, okay, now we'll go to line two because it's timely. And then I'll ask a question such as, who's the carrier? You know, And if it's a one-truck owner-operator who's in Atlanta and doesn't have a working cell phone, that's probably one I'm going to pass on because there has to be a realistic um, chance of me getting paid. I don't work for free. I work for less than I could if I worked for a truck line, but I don't work for free. The other side has to pay me because most drivers who have been fired don't have any money. And then I'll say a question like this, and I'll say, listen very carefully. I don't know, want to know why you, yet why you think you got fired. I want to know why the employer says they fired me fired you. And, mm -hmm. and I said, in about 15 seconds or less. And they typically they say, I wasn't told. I said, okay, why were you fired? Tell, why do you think you were fired? And tell me that in two minutes or less. More, more or less, this is what I do. And that's the screening process. And, you know, if they tell me, you know, on April 13th, I refused to run because I wouldn't drive in violation of hours of service, and I was fired on the 14th. I said, okay, we may have something here. And, uh, you know, and then I explored the issue. Where were you? What town did you have to go to? When did you get the dispatch? Was it going to be close or was it clearly going to violate? And I can engage in a discussion of the merits of the case. You know, the, the next subject I go to, you know, is usually fees and how I charge. And then uh, several important things we deal with, and that is, their obligation to me in a case. And the, part of that is you got to have a working cell phone. If your cell phone gets disconnected because you don't have money, that's not my fault. I have to be able to reach you. And you got to keep me with an address, and you need to check in periodically, and you have to be in it for the long run. Although about 80% of these cases settle and settle in, you know, within six to eight months, you know, if you're going to go to trial and through all the appeals, you got to be in it for up to five years. And a lot of people just simply don't want that. I Frankly, right. I don't want it either, but it's a re reality of the legal system. The final thing I discuss with them are goals. And the driver has to conform their goals to mine. And the goal is to get a clean deck and get some money. Because pr pretty much, if you don't want your job back, the court can't give you much more than money. And I've had drivers who have said, I wanted them to shut these co this company down. I said, well, an administrative law judge from the Department of Labor or an OSHA investigator cannot shut down a trucking company. I've had other people tell me they wanted to write a book 
Other guys tell me they wanted to make the company suffer and spend lots of money. Other people who said they wanted to be on TV. I had one driver who said he wanted to be the Karen Silkwood, who kind of predates Aaron Brockovich. He wanted to be the Karen <laughs> Silkwood of the trucking industry. Those aren't good goals. Those are goals <laughs> that I'm going to pass on a case. And the other thing people have to understand is that as an attorney, you know, we have to be concise. And we have to get, they have to get to the point when I'm dealing with them. And sometimes I'm not going to be able to return calls right away if I'm in trial. But the expectations are, have to be in these cases to get a modest amount of money and a clean back report. Because they've heard T.J. Graff was awarded $90,000, doesn't mean we're always going to get that. Doesn't mean their case is as good. Might mean there's a different judge. And I, there's about 48 judges of the Department of Labor. And I kind of had, I've had cases before all of them. So understand that in a settlement, which eliminates risk, nobody loses. I'm not afraid to go to trial, but there's a risk you're going to lose. And, you know, the driver may think he's got just this great case, and I may say, your case is lousy or weak or here's your problem areas. Settlement is risk assessment. What am I going to win if I win? And it's rare to ring the bell and get everything you're looking for. I mean, we've done it big in 17 years of doing cases under this law, 16 or 17, we've really rung the bell maybe five times. We've done well, but judges can cut back damages if a driver doesn't look for a job hard enough or turns down a job that's offered to him after he's fired, you know, a, you know, a decent trucking job. And those are all things that affect the case. And I tell them most of all, the judge might not believe you. He might believe them. And that's a big risk. So you're shooting the dice. So that's why we say a clean back, a modest amount of money, and, um, you know, getting me paid, of course, but, uh, you know, which comes out of the money. Those, are, those have to be the goals in the case. And if your expectation is to, make the, is to be famous and write a book uh, about your experiences about corruption in the trucking industry, it's just not a realistic goal, at least. You know, they'll be on their own if they want to bring one of those cases. Well, I just I just wanted to uh, clarify something because um, I'm not sure if people realize this that the driver really doesn't um, pay you. There is no fee, and it's all according to if they win, if you take the case number one, and then if you win. Is that correct? Okay. Right, and and it, because the statute provides that uh, if we prevail the trucking company, the employer, has to pay my reasonable hourly fee. And um, so it's whatever the judge determines is reasonable as to the rate of my fee and as to the amount of time put in. I will tell you this. If a case is going to, you know, a lot of how high the fee goes depends in large part what the trucking company does. I mean, UPS will litigate a case like crazy. In the case of TJ Graff, uh, you know, the trucking company, the fees were pretty substantial because there were a lot of motions, and every day you're in trial. I mean, it's not just a matter of a, having a two-day trial. It's a matter of all that preparation that goes into it and all the time after the trial to write a brief. We don't go to juries under this law. We go to administrative law judges of the Department of Labor. And so after a trial is involved, 
then the administrative law judge writes a decision, and we write a brief telling him why he should rule our way. So uh, typically, and then out of my fees come out of if it settles, my fee also comes out of the settlement. You know, I have been known on occasion to cut it when necessary if a case needs to be cut because it's a, maybe turned into a weak case because the driver didn't tell me something or there's a document out there that I wasn't told about. Um, so, but in any event, the driver does not pay my attorney's fees or my uh, office staff fees. The other side pays it. However, the driver does have an obligation to cover the hard expenses associated with a case. If if I come to them and say, I want to depose your dispatcher, and a deposition is where we ask questions in advance with a court reporter present, no judge. And, you know, I'll tell them, hey, a deposition, all-day deposition is going to run you seven to $800. Now, I, they may be in Atlanta. And I can say, hey, if the other lawyer agrees, we'll do it by phone. And the other lawyers usually agree. But, you know, there comes, or if the driver can't pay for the deposition, we don't do the deposition and carry on with the case as best we can. Uh, Driver's obligation is to get me to the trial. If it's in the Midwest, I'm going to drive. If it's in Florida, I'm going to fly. But, I, you know, driver can put me up at his house and things like that. But, you know, the driver better be prepared at some point down the line. A case will typically take eight months to a year with OSHA, so there's not an immediate expense. But ultimately, the driver is going to have some investment in the case. And, you know, there's an old saying in the law, and that is the client who pays the least complains the most. And um, so, I, you know, drivers need to be invested at least on some level, not only just committed to the case, but also at least financially, and that's going to amount to them paying my expenses, which will come in down the line. So uh, I don't want to give the impression that there's never a charge. There can be if it doesn't settle. Now, those expenses don't come into play if the case settles. There just isn't, you know, the other side's going to be ordered to pay it if we win. Or if I have advanced them, they're going to come through back through a, a win. And the other thing is is that a lot of cases settle at the OSHA level where there are zero expenses. A lot of cases can settle early after we lose with OSHA. And I say that with a little chuckle because we usually lose at the OSHA level we can file an objection and request a formal hearing before an administrative law judge from the Department of Labor. And a lot of times after the case gets at that level, there's a fairly prompt resolution. The other side knows that they're going to have fees to pay to their own lawyer. So uh, the attorney fees are strictly contingent. Okay. Well, I mean, that's only understandable. But um, Well, let me ask you here. I'm watching the time here. Um, I... I, I gave this driver my word I'd ask you this question, and I don't know if you're prepared for it or not, but it has to do with um, per diem and CPM pay. Um, he goes he goes to a company, uh, I don't know what the CM pay, what CPM pay was, but they their option for pay is, you know, by, by the mile or per diem, and he goes, uh, you know, he jumps on the Greyhound bus, goes there to, for the three-day orientation, and um, make you know makes it through the orientation. Everything's fine. They're ready to go to work. And then the company tells them, tells everybody in the orientation class, well, you have to sign this form saying that you want the per diem pay. And uh, you know, obviously, he didn't. He wanted the CPM pay. And most of the other ones in the orientation class were new drivers or students and uh, didn't know anything about the per diem. 
But they were basically making them sign a form stating that they wanted the per diem pay. And uh, even though the CPM was an option, um, I mean, is, are, is, I don't know if that would be a coercion or false advertisement. or I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Well, also, he the, when well, the guy had mentioned to him that, you know, if anybody else says anything that they want per diem now, I'll know that it came from you. So it was a little even more than that. Well, I'm going to talk from the level of federal employment law. I don't know what each individual state's provide. There's a right. lot of states that have their own whistleblower statutes. And if there's some illegality about the per diem, and we'll talk about per diem in a minute, but if there's an illegality to what the company is requesting, that complaining about the practice of per diem, if it's, a, if it's an illegal per diem structure, then the driver might have a claim under a state law, a whistleblower claim. Doubtful, but might. Now, the driver has a choice in this matter. You know, companies say we only do per diem. His choice is not to work for that company. We do have a free enterprise system in this country, although it seems to be changing with the present administration in Washington. But we do generally have a free enterprise system. And that free enterprise system basically has something called at-will employment which means the employer generally is entitled to run a company unfairly, um, uh, poorly, um, entitled to hire his niece as a driver because uh, he'd rather have relatives working there, entitled to only hire people who drive Chevrolets, all sorts of examples, but he can't run it illegally. And most per diems... Uh, plans would not be illegal. Uh, I had the benefit because I knew this issue was coming, and I had some working knowledge of per diem. Although I got to admit that, you know, this, somebody should really consult their own tax professional. I called mine. I called Willis and Associates, my accountants in Burnsville, because I also can claim per diem. Per diem. First of all, the IRS has per diem schedules. It says you can get X per day when you're away from home. There can either be a national rate, and sometimes you can also take the state claim. Okay, So let's say, for example, IRS allows $56 per day for an individual, an employed individual, who isn't reimbursed actual expenses. They can claim X per day, and if they sleep overnight in that location, they can claim an additional amount more. So let's take a hypothetical $80 a day per diem according to IRS schedules. Now, but let's take a trucking company that uh, pays per diem of 15 cents. Now, to the extent the driver is uh, getting paid per diem from the trucking company as part of his pay schedule, to the extent that per diem he gets, he or she gets, exceeds the IRS per diem. Let's say he gets ten dollars today or hundred dollars today for per diem, and IRS allows fifty-six dollars. He's going to have to pay income tax on that extra forty-four dollars, and he can't deduct his actual expenses 
because he's already received that per, the, a reimbursement for what is through the per diem from the trucking company. You know, it's not a, an exact number of reimbursement, but to the extent that he's overpaid in per diem for what he's actually claiming, you know, he can't. You can't claim the expenses twice. So consider this: if you got 100 bucks per diem paid for today, and you're paying 56 bucks, you're allowed 56 bucks under the IRS schedule. You got 44 bucks in per diem. You can't deduct your cell phone. You can't deduct your motel bill because you've already received the per diem as reimbursement. The other important thing is the driver is going to pay income tax on that extra portion, and he's going to have nothing contributed in the form of Social Security for that extra amount. Now, just one other thing about per diem. And I know I, I run into drivers all the time, all the time, frequently anyway, who are paid strictly on a 1099. There's no wage. And the trucking company calls them an independent contractor. Well, the trucking company owns the truck, tells you where to go, where to pick up loads, where to get it repaired, and things of that nature. You are not an independent contractor, particularly when you have no risk in the game other than your your pay. You're not absorbing losses and things of that nature, and you don't have a lot of independent decision-making. So that's not employment. It means it has to be subject to the extent that there is wage involved, it's subject to withholding. So um, just keep that in mind. Drivers should keep that in mind. But as long as the per diem pay plan is not shoving everything into per diem or the vast majority, say, for example, there's a, a payment plan of, say, $0.22 cents a mile for wage and $0.13 cents for per diem, you know, that's a reasonable a reasonable per diem plan, and I don't think the Internal Revenue Service would have a problem with that. Mind you, you should contact they, these guys. I'm generally an employment lawyer, so they should contact the tax professional when they do their return for really specific advice. So don't necessarily rely on what I tell you. But if the debt driver doesn't, I, I don't see there's a retaliation issue involved in the scenario you uh, presented. Well, well, let me let me set it up this way. Okay, I'm in Florida. I talk to a trucking company in Kentucky, and Kentucky is just off the top of my head. And I say, well, okay, yeah, I'm interested in going to work for you. How do you pay? And they and they tell me, well, you have the option of per diem or 34 cents a mile. And I say, okay, sounds good. That you know, so I grab the Greyhound bus, go up there, and I want the 34 cents a mile. And then the last day of orientation, they hit me with, well, uh, you have to sign this form saying you want per diem. Now, and you're talking, Alan, under your scenario, exclusively per diem, nothing else. And the and and and, and the per diem be per diem. And the no no ex exclusively under per diem. I mean, and and the per diem, uh, the per diem that they have is, is legal and it's fine. It's just your standard basic per diem. But I would you know, but they told me that I had the option of per diem or CPM on the phone. But now, but now that I'm there. Now that they put me on a Greyhound and I'm there and I'm ready to go to work, now they tell me, well, no, you have to sign this form saying you want per diem. And that you want exclusively per diem? In right. other words, a per diem might be $0.38 cents, cents a mile. Well, first of all, calling it on that basis with no withholding whatsoever, I don't think the trucking company can do that because a portion of that is, you know, it's got to be reasonably determined to be waged. They're not an independent contractor. 
You know, per diem, you know, it, it would be like trying to, you know, pay a Walmart cashier on per diem and not hourly and claim that they're um, uh, independent contractors. I mean, drivers are entitled to at least a minimum wage also. You know, people think that the drivers drivers are not subject to the Fair Labor Standards Act. They are entitled to the minimum wage provision of the Fair uh, Labor Standards Act. So I, I think that kind of scheme where they invite you up on kind of a bait and switch, first, right. first of all, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, could there be a false advertising claim? Sure. I think the driver going to work on straight per diem would be crazy because the next thing you know he'd find himself um, – Maybe crazy is too strong of a word, but I, I think he would be misguided to go on a straight per diem because he's not going to have any of his tax withholdings, and when it comes time to be pay estimated taxes, he might be out of money, and he's going to face all those penalties and interest from the IRS. And, you know, the best solution in that case is turn around and go home. Is there a false advertising claim? Maybe. I, I don't know enough about that area of the law, but, you know, part of having a, a lawsuit claim is not just having liability but having there be damages. So what's his damages for, a bus ticket and two days' worth of wages? I think a lawyer is unlikely to touch that kind of false advertising claim, it, 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 although there are class action attorneys over there. But, you know, to have a class action, you have to – the practice has to be widespread, and, it, you know, the members of the class have to have been dealt with um, uniformly or in a similar fashion. So I wouldn't think there would be much of a claim in that case. Okay, you know, and if drivers for, don't like the pay structure, pay structure, their option is not to work for that company. Right, right. I understand that. It's just a scenario of being told that you had the two options, and then once you're there, I didn't know if coercion would fit in there. Okay, well, I, I mean, I just, uh, I know it's a case-to-case basis, but don't get me uh, wrong. There, there could be a false advertising claim there, but I don't think it, there's a lot of money behind it. You know, I'm thinking, right? You know. Talk. Yeah, it, it, and this goes back to checking out carriers before you apply there. And I will just say this. Um, I have sued trucking companies that I believe are kind of rotten to the core, you know, the real corrupt ones, massive hours of service, bad equipment, things of that nature. And I uh-huh. have sued trucking companies that are that are generally pretty good but have some dispatchers or other people who make some mistakes. So, I mean, if you go on the Internet and you go to some of these websites like Trucker's Report or RipoffReport.com, you're going to see some things on there about that are negative about some trucking companies that I consider to be fairly decent. But, you know, there's the matter of checking out a trucking company, and when they have, all the feedback is negative, then, you know, you drivers should probably stay away from that trucking company or – now, if somebody wants to go to work for a, 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 a trucking company, ask a driver who works there. Ask 10 drivers who work there. Ask clearly what the pay structure is. I think the scenario you gave me is probably a rare scenario. How do you ask them on the phone how they pay is part of that per diem. And, uh, you know, I, I, there's nothing like good research. Don't, don't rely on the carrier's uh, advertising to say they're going to make you a successful owner-operator when you've got three, three months of having the CDL and, you're going to drive, lease a truck from their leasing affiliate and lease it back onto the trucking company and make a lot of money. Those are, you know, if if those deals were so good, the trucking company would uh, put employee drivers in there and keep all the money for themselves. Right. Well, I'm I'm, I'm hearing that more and more from uh, from drivers where um, they're given the option of 
CPM or per diem, and then once they're there, they're they're towed only per diem. But um, all right, let's see. Uh, what is it? about eight twenty? Okay. Uh, one question I know we kind of wanted to touch on was um, uh, law enforcement officers if they have the right to search sleepers. Um, I mean, that's uh, either a, a, a city cop or county or state or, uh, well, DOT officer at the scale. They pull you over and um, they say, well, we're, we're going to search your sleeper. Um, can they do that without having a warrant first, or where, where are we at on the law with that? Yes. Yes. Well, first of all, there, to, be, to be pulled over, Normally, there has to be reasonable suspicion of criminal activity, which doesn't require much. There just has to be driver, you know, law enforcement can't pull you over on a whim, although right. there are some exceptions because we work in a highly regulated industry. When I say we, you know, I consider myself part of the trucking industry as opposed to part of the legal profession. I identify with truckers better. But let, let's say it's, it's a roadside inspection. And he says, I want to go into your sleeper because, and he doesn't necessarily even have to say because. And I'm not a criminal defense attorney, mind you, but I've been able to write some things on this lately. If there's a reason to do a search, a legitimate reason, which doesn't have to be much, they don't need the warrant. The Fourth Amendment of the United States Constitution says that the people shall be secure, I'm paraphrasing, the people shall be secure in their homes and in their persons. And, and uh, it prohibits unreasonable searches and seizures. The Supreme Court has carved out a lot of things that don't require warrants because the law says searches and seizures shall not be unreasonable. And then it says in that same Fourth Amendment of the Constitution, but a warrant shall only issue upon probable cause. So the courts over years and years have carved out exceptions to the requirement that a search be on a warrant. For example, hot pursuit. Uh, you know, you're chasing down a criminal, he might have a gun, you need to search him when, you, when the cop tackles him, if the cop can do that, or things of that nature. Um, other things would be, for example, if somebody is pulled over at a traffic stop for speeding. The police officer has the right to search that person to protect himself, the cop, from, and search the area around him to protect him from where the person pulled over might otherwise reach for a weapon. Now, in the case of truck drivers, first of all, the courts, at least in cases involving mobile homes, motor homes, excuse me, have said that even in that case where it's clearly somebody's home, that there is a lesser level of requiring a warrant. They've essentially said a warrant is not required because, A, the um, – well, essentially because the if the cop goes to get a warrant, that mobile motor home might be, you know, 200 miles away by the time he gets to the courthouse and gets, gets the warrant typed up and presents it to a judge for signature. So in the case of a, of a truck unit that's – at least the courts. I'm not saying I agree with this. I'm saying what the status is of the law. The court would be concerned about the ability to move the evidence out of state. There has not been a clear case involving a sleeper berth, at least in any reported court decisions that I can find. 
The second thing is, is that a sleeper berth is used for sleeping. It's not normally the complete home of the individual, although in some cases it could be. So that's going to put a lower level of scrutiny upon a warrantless search. Third, we work, truckers work in a highly regulated industry. They are putting that vehicle in the stream of commerce. And when it's a regulated industry, there's much more leeway, for example, administrative searches by a commercial vehicle uh, inspector who may not even have arrest powers. By having that CDL, having operating authority as registered with the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration, this is viewed more as a tool of business than it is a residence. So can they search the sleeper? As a general rule, yes, if they have even a suspicion that, say, somebody could reach through the curtain and pull a weapon or things of that nature. You know, searches, there's always been search allowed, the courts have allowed since the 60s, searches which are incident to a lawful arrest and searches which are simply incident to a lawful stop in order for the police officer to at least search the area surrounding the driver in order if they have a concern for their own personal safety. Okay, well, uh, boy, you sound like an attorney. Um, all right, so, so um, a, I don't know if that's a compliment or not. I I try to make the law understandable for drivers and try not to. Oh no, no, you, you did fine. I was just okay. So I'm thinking, okay, you're driving along and um, you have a tail light out. State officer pulls you over. And I used to be a police officer, so I know after they get you out of the truck, one of the first questions they're going to ask you is, is there anybody else in the truck? And I say no. And the only reason I've been pulled over is the taillight out. And, and, I, and, okay, so, and so he asked me, is there anybody else in the truck? I say no. Uh, later on, he wants to search the truck and the sleeper. I mean, what would be the reasonable cause? Well, he's got a tail light. There might be some concern that um, there's somebody in there, that the, the driver is lying to him, and he might need to go search it for um, purposes of, of uh, protecting himself. You know, and the threat that there might be somebody in there with a weapon or without a weapon who could harm him. So, I mean, I would say that that's pretty much... Uh, you know, there's cases that hold you can open a trunk of a car incident to a lawful arrest. You know, if they believe there's contraband. There may not be a reason in this case to believe there's contraband, but in a sleeper unit there might be somebody else in there who could harm the officer. Yeah, well, I know as an officer before, I mean, you know, you, uh, they can always come say, well, you know, the the way he was talking, his body language, you know, I, I was I was under the impression, the belief that there there was somebody in there. There's always, I mean, I guess the best thing to do, if you don't have anything to hide, there's no reason to tell them no anyway. But, um, uh, you know, right. but, yeah. you know, Don, oh, go ahead. They're going to search it anyway, Alan. You tell them no, yeah. they're going to search it anyway. Yeah, right. So figure right, that. But, they're going to do it, you know. And, and if they find something, you can deal with fighting it later. You know, I mean, you can tell them no uh, or no, but I know you're going to go ahead and do it anyway. And leave it at that, without getting smart with them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm just going to say, Donna, the way I look at that is, I mean, like I said, if you don't have anything to hide, no reason to say no. Well, I think, um, can you hear me? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. I think a lot of people are just angry, the fact that they're that they're even 
put in that position where they have to. Um, they probably don't have anything to hide, but they're they're just angry. Like you know, they feel like a, a their privacy has been invaded, an invasion of privacy type of thing. And there, a lot of them are are very frustrated with all the regulations, and then to have to be subjected to that kind of uh, behavior. I think there's a lot of frustration in general with truck drivers, and I think um, I think that's an example of something that just you know puts them over the top. Well, and that's a good well, point. And, I mean, and, I mean, know, and what, Paul just yeah. Oh, oh no, I'm just going to say that's a good point about the invasion of privacy. But like you said, I mean, they are regulated. They're they're out there in the commerce. So is there? Do they really have? Do they really have privacy? Well, well, there, there's no, the also Constitution the Constitution doesn't have a. The Constitution doesn't say anything about there being a right to privacy, as we've known from the endless de- debate of one particularly hot social industry or it's a social issue. But um, do you have privacy? You have the right to be protected against unreasonable searches and seizures, and you know, right now. You know the law, law con, criminal law. You know a lot of things changed. You know, at, you know in the late fifties and early sixties, we came up with the Miranda rights having to be read. P, indigent people are entitled under a case called Gideon versus Wainwright to have legal defense, um, legal defense uh, pointed for them. Criminal law developed heavily in the sixties to give people more rights. And then in the 70s, you know, there was uh, a new chief justice and a couple more appointments, and things have changed. And we probably have fewer, in the in the criminal area, probably have fewer protections than there used to be. Um, that being said, criminal law changes slowly. They don't make, you know, vast pronouncements. The Supreme Court never, rarely makes a vast pronouncement on something. They do things incrementally. And uh, so you have these principles, you know, you have to be read your Miranda rights if you're a suspect. Well, now they have what are called persons of interest, which they used to be <laughs> called suspects. So, But a person of interest doesn't have to be read as Miranda rights if he's, it's clearly just part of an investigation. So we have these exceptions that have come out of the court. Right now, in my opinion, as a, you know, I'm kind of a, I follow the Supreme Court and what they do in, in most areas in the area of constitutional law, even though you know it doesn't always affect my employment law practice. Right now, there are no conservatives, excuse me, there are no liberals on the U.S. Supreme Court in the area of criminal law. There really aren't. Having the old Warren Court liberals like we had in the 50s and 60s, they're just not on the court anymore, including the Clinton and Obama appointments. So right now, this is fairly settled. I think the court would simply not apply, would not find that a search of a sleeper berth. If the driver is lawfully pulled over, which could even be a random stop where they're stopping every fifth truck or something like that, um, in that area, they're just simply not going to carve. I don't see them carving out some sort of special treatment for the driver any different than they would for the driver of the motorhome or the driver of an automobile. Right. The argument that the sleeper birth is a, is a home 
within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution won't wash with the present court structure of the United States. I think it should, but I don't think it will. All right. Well, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, it makes sense to me. So, well, listen, I know you. Uh, I know we had you till eight thirty, so I know you got to run. But um, I, I tell you, to, to make it all simple, uh, I would just say, hey, you have a question about your rights, uh, contact you at truckersjusticecenter.com. dot com. That would be the best thing to do. That'll work, and my phone is 651-454-5800. I'm on it now. They can call me. You know, okay, and, that, uh, and, and that, that's on the website. That's on the website, too, as well, right? It is. Yep. Okay, well, listen, yes, I, I, appreciate you, I appreciate you coming on, and we'll, uh, we'll do this again, and uh, th- thanks for your time. And we'll see you in Kansas City, thanks, Paul. It's been a pleasure. Indeed you will. Thanks. Take care. <laughs> Good night. Uh, all right. Thanks again. Um, boy, I tell you, Donald, there's a lot to this law, huh? There really is. Um, you know, it's not as, I, I mean, a lot of the things, because I heard that thing many times, well, this is my home, and they, you know, recite the Fourth Amendment, but it just won't hold water, and uh, it, it, that, it, that is not a definition of a home, and if if you've chosen that to be your home, that's one thing, but... Well, it's interesting he brings up the Constitution because it even goes into as deep as that. But, um, I mean, there's always that reasonable suspicion. And, and you know, having been a police officer and a deputy sheriff, I mean, uh, I mean, I, I, that's really just all they need is reasonable suspicion because that officer has to protect themselves. And, and uh, you know, that's a stranger they pulled over. They have no idea who they are or what they – I mean, so uh, – but – yeah, I was, I was, I have to admit, I was still a little surprised, surprised on that. But as he explained it, I mean, he explains it well. You've been doing this a long time, and he, he's, uh, uh, he's definitely one of the best, you know, as far as this employment law for truckers. I mean, he grew up. I don't know if, it, I don't know if many people know, but he, um, I mean, he put, his, he put himself through law school as a dispatcher, and I'm, I'm assuming that that was with his, uh, his uh, family business. But he's been doing this a long time. He's good at what he does. Well, I think the evidence of that is the amount of wins he gets. And uh, Paul isn't going to take a case unless, you know, it's a good case. And so many times, you know, a driver thinks he has a good case, but then when you really investigate what's happened and what did you do and, did you know, all all the questions, like he said, within the screening, uh, he realizes that, you know, it's not a good case. So, uh yeah, I wrote all those down. I wrote down his five questions and his his uh, and his goals, and uh, so that looks like a future post, you know. But uh, like you said, he can sum it up in five minutes. Because I've had some people email me and say, "Well, I contacted Paul Taylor, and in about two minutes, he told me I didn't have a case," and they were kind of frustrated. But you know, he he can. I mean, he'll 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 know right he'll know within five minutes. So. Um, but it's good he the the advice he gives for the you know it's that burden of proof that you know i've I've also answered emails and i I try to stick to that burden of proof you've got to have that burden of proof like photos of the uh Qualcomm messages like Paul said, and you know he last year he was at the convention and he took a good look at that uh video dash cam from video dash cam dot com uh-huh. and he said, "Oh yeah, man, this is great, you know if drivers had this thing, it would make his job a whole lot easier so it's that recording and getting it down and 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 having that evidence in hand that uh you know that's going to help you build your case. 
Oh, absolutely. And uh, he, uh, I'll tell you what, he's a, a great advocate for the driver, I'll say that, and we're really thrilled to be able to um, have him and people like him. <laughs> he's more of an advocate for truckers than he is for attorneys. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I appreciate him coming on. So listen, I'll tell you what, we'll, uh, we'll take a quick uh, sponsor break here, be back, and we'll wrap it up here on Truth About Trucking Live. Stay with us. There's a lot of copycats out there, but you know, there's only one. Truth About Trucking Live. Don't go anywhere. Alan will be right back. Hey, thanks again for listening to Truth About Trucking Live, and I want to tell you about XRS Corporation and how they're leading the way for the industry's mobile technology. XRS puts the power to improve every aspect of trucking in the hands of the ones who matter the most, the drivers. Named to honor the natural evolution of Zada, their previous name, and Road Science, their ongoing business focus, XRS is a company and a breakthrough mobile technology platform dedicated to alleviating the increasing demands on drivers drivers, owner-operators, and fleet managers. XRS is leading the trucking industry's migration to mobile devices for collecting and analyzing compliance and management data. Through XRS, fleet managers, owners, and drivers can collect, sort, view, and analyze data to help lower costs, increase safety, attain compliance with governmental regulations, and improve customer satisfaction all through their mobile devices. Their simple plug-and-play solution eliminates costly equipment purchases, installation, and training by delivering intuitive cloud-based technology built directly through all major wireless carriers to virtually any mobile device. For more information, visit them at xrscorp.com, and you can also find them on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. XRS Corporation, dedicated to making the life of the driver easier. Learn more about their breakthrough mobile technology platform. Check them out at xrscorp.com. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to Truth About Trucking Live on Blog Talk Radio. I hear from a lot of newcomers to the industry who still have that entrepreneur spirit that has made the United States of America the great country that she is. And many of them still have one goal in mind, and that is to someday have their own rig and become an owner-operator. Truth About Trucking Live is all about providing honest, reliable information about the OTR trucking industry, especially for those just beginning their truck driving careers. Running your own trucking business is part of the entrepreneurial spirit that has kept America moving since trucks were first used by the military in World War One. If you're considering starting your own owner-off business, there's only one name that you need to know, Lone Mountain Truck Leasing. LoneMountainTruck.com offers the best lease purchase plans in the industry. There's no huge balloon payment at the end, and when you make that final monthly payment, they hand over the title, the truck is yours. They require a very reasonable down payment, and the monthly payments are kept at an affordable $1,000 per month, and sometimes even less. A great inventory to choose from, including Peterbilts, Volvos, Internationals, and Freightliners, and all of their trucks are mechanically checked out, dependable, and ready to go to work. And unlike trucking company leases, if you choose to change motor carriers, the truck goes with you. It's your truck. Check them out at LoneMountainTruck.com or give them a call toll-free, 866-512-5685. LoneMountainTruck.com, the honest guys for the sweet lease deals. LoneMountainTruck.com. I'm just trying.
saving my family from a cell phone. Nobody understands, can't get no helping hand. Lord, have mercy on the, the trucking brand. You're listening to Truth About Trucking live on Blog Talk Radio. Now, back to the show. All right, Donna. Hey, I didn't. I don't know. I mean, uh, we didn't get a chance to even chat before the show. Do you have any uh, announcements or reports or anything? No, I just want to talk about the Truck Driver Social Media Convention just for a couple of minutes. Uh, remind everybody that it's uh, again in Kansas City, Missouri, at Harris on October 11th through the 13th. Um, tickets again this year are uh, ninety-nine dollars, and everybody says, "Well, what do you get with your ticket?" Well, you get an awful lot with your ticket. You get your meals, and these are really, um, anybody will tell you from last year, the food was outrageous at Harris. Um, All the information, the speakers, your truck parking, your entry to the Pride in Your Ride truck contest, uh, which is uh, sponsored by Riggs and Rides magazine. You get refreshments in between, snacks. And also, uh, this year we'll have close to, I would say, uh, about $8,000 worth of prizes from Go Truck Stop and uh, Cobra Electronics, who is a gold sponsor this year. Um, They have been sponsoring, this is their third year. And uh, so that's what you get for your $99, uh, which I think is pretty tremendous. You also get your Friday night party uh we call it a welcome reception it it really is a big party again with food and uh they will have an uh open bar there um a cash bar for people um only on that friday night uh, over at Harris uh, Voodoo Lounge um so who who's our speakers this year well we've got Jeff Farker of Oida speaking about truck driver wages relating to the truck driver shortage we have Hope Rivenberg, Rich Wilson, Andy Warkaba presenting uh, uh, the truck driver uh, parking issue and Jason's Law. Hope was on earlier on the show this this afternoon talking to about the DOT meeting she had on Monday regarding the survey and study she's doing. So th- this is going to be a, a tremendous presentation. Um, we also have Jim Bouchard who um, is our social media uh, inspirational speaker. Um, he has he is um, on the social media on Twitter. What is, he's think like a black belt? Think like a black belt, huh? Huh? Or uh, and he's he's just a tremendous uh, speaker and inspirationalist. And if you ever we we have his book. Uh, which is Think Like a Black Belt, and it talks all about how he got to be where he is. No matter what your circumstances are, you can overcome them. So he's he's going to have a, a tremendous uh, presentation also. Um, our, our special guests this year are going to be Desiree Wood of the Women's Trucker Network, and uh, I also want to mention uh, that she's been working with Sandy Talbot and Shelley Lichty and Allison Morris on that truck driver study. And we have, again, for the third year, uh, Kyla Lieberg of Truckers Against Trafficking. And uh, she'll be spreading the awareness. Kyla was a speaker last year. Uh, she's been a nominee for the Making a Difference Award 
uh, for the last two years, which brings me to the Making a Difference Award. It's called the J- Jason Rivenberg Making a Difference Award. And uh, this year's nominees or candidates uh, to vote for are Richard Wilson of Trans Products, Kathy Cass of A Trucker's Wife, and also Randall Doan of Deaf Truckers United. They were all uh, nominated. They had the most nominations, and now we'll be voting uh, for them. Uh, again, the Pride in Your Ride Truck Contest, it's, it's, uh, how, it's not how pretty your truck is. It's how, how well you maintain it, cleaned and shined and, and, and just an all-around uh, appearance of your truck. And there's some pretty nice uh, prizes for that, plus a trophy award. So uh, this this is a three-day event that everybody who walks away says, this is the best thing I've ever been to. And it's really hard to describe it otherwise. It's the uniting of the industry, networking, it's learning social media, learning about the issues, and above all, it really is honoring the professional driver. So again, that's October 11th through the 13th, Kansas City, Missouri at Harris. And the website is www.truckingsocialmedia.com. And I know I've been saying it, but the new website we're hoping will be up by May 1st. So uh, it, it, it's quite a nice website. Well, you know, and with all that, but you know what's really priceless about this convention is uh, all the people that's there. I mean, you have drivers, you have uh, executives and officers of, of very good trucking companies, uh, regulatory. I mean, we have Richard Wilson, regulatory expert, going to be there. Our guest tonight, Paul Taylor, attorney. I mean, these uh, these are the people that you're going to rub shoulders with for three days. So, I mean, how often do you get to spend three days with an attorney and not get a big bill? So, I mean, it's the socializing and networking, talking to everybody that really, Don, I consider really priceless. I mean, Oh, it is. How often can you sit down with an attorney or a regulatory expert or, uh, you know, an officer of a very good large motor carrier and and talk? I mean, that's 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 pretty priceless in my book. Right. It, there's people from all areas uh, of the trucking industry who attend this. And we're talking about uh, government agencies, um, really a, a, a vast array of of uh, repre- representing the trucking industry. I mean, good possibility DOT is going to be there? Yeah, right? absolutely. Last year the FMCSA was there. So this is a very um, a very popular event, and people, when they leave it, I think uh, they're – I don't think, I know it's – we over-deliver. The event is uh, over-deliver, and they don't expect it to be as good as it is, and then they're really shocked. Um, and they, and I, you can tell because the buzz on social media for about a month after it's over is still going on. So um, that's always a good sign. You know, I would like to mention some of our sponsors. Only take a second. Uh, Cobra Electronics, OIDA, Lone Mountain Truck Leasing, Trucker Lawyers, Rem Bennett and more, TruckerToTrucker.com, Go Truck Stop. Rigs and Rides Magazine, XRS, Lake Cumberland, CDL Training, Real Women in Trucking, Pixel Digital Media, Go CDL Jobs, 
truckdriversmoneysavingtips.com and transportwatch.com. And we've got uh, a few more ready to um, be moved through for next week. So um, we hope to see everybody there. Uh, Just go to the website. You can get your tickets there. uh, Or you can sign up for more information. uh, And uh, we hope to see you in Kansas City in October. Yep, sounds good. It'll be here before we know it. And uh, so that will do it for this week. Thanks for joining us, uh, everyone on the phone line. Uh, everybody was just listening to t- tonight, Donna. The, uh, <laughs> I guess they, I don't know if they wanted to call in, but they were sure listening, so we appreciate it. And be sure to bookmark us and add us to your favorites. And follow the show so you'll be notified of upcoming broadcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter. Uh, the Twitter and Facebook. The links are right there on our Blog Talk Radio page. And thanks again to Paul Taylor of the Truckers Justice Center. And you can find him at truckersjustice.com. And we will leave you with a song that got the entire industry hopping a few years back. Haven't played it in a while. Performed by John Johnson and written by David Ayers and Barry Allen of Allen and Ayers Productions. Here's a song that was actually recognized as a national anthem for the trucking industry when the big rigs don't roll. So until next time, on behalf of Donna Smith, AskTheTrucker.com, TruthAboutTrucking.com, TruckingSocialMedia.com, Blog Talk Radio, and Truth About Trucking Live, I'm Alan Smith. Drive safe, and thanks for listening. It ain't right, man, it sucks When the big old companies make a billion bucks On the backs of the working man Driving trucks and cars It takes 1,200 bucks to fill this rig While I'm stuffing the pockets of some big wig He don't care if I've maxed out my credit cards The only trick I get for my truck is the jack and the price when I fill it up. It's like pumping my money down an endless hole. But what they gonna do when the big rigs don't roll? Tell me what they gonna do when the big rigs don't roll. don't need a college degree to figure out that they're ripping off me. They get a big tax break and all I get's the shaft. Insurance goes up if my credit is down. If I sink any lower, I'm gonna drown. And I ain't getting no help from a bureaucrat, no. The only trick I get for my truck is the jack in the price when I fill it up. It's like pumping my money down an endless hole. But what they gonna do when the big rigs don't roll? Tell me what they gonna do when the big rigs don't roll. If mama hadn't taught me the golden I tell those big wigs what to do with the nozzle on the pump where I get my gas. But I'm a good boy and I won't do that. Oh, the only trick I get for 
on my truck with a jack in the price when I fill it up. It's like pumping my money down an endless hole. But what they gonna do when the big rigs don't roll? Tell me what they gonna do when the big rigs don't roll. What they gonna do when the big rigs don't roll? 